0: I used to work in an Alzheimer's clinic when I was trying to get into medical school. And once in a while, these older folks, they would have dementia. Parts of the brains would literally wither, like the flesh would wither. It's not just the thinking and the electricity. And hidden painting abilities would come out. And I'm not talking like they're gonna be in in a museum at some point, but a dramatic change in in the way they wrote, in their ability to paint landscapes. And those kind of things make me think, there's a lot of untapped potential. So those examples, when I, t- you know, when I take care of brain injured, it's not all sad cases. They can be phenomenal in some ways. And you learn that there's so much going on in the brain that we're not seeing on the daily level. So I think there's a lot of potential we haven't, un- we haven't tapped into that. We could if we structured things better. Anything difficult where you have to think is good for your brain. If you ask Usain Bolt, how do I get stronger legs, to run. It, it's intuitive. But the flesh in our skulls, it's meant to think and feel. And that is the power of self-growth. And it's a thinking machine, it's a thinking flesh that you actually have to use or to protect itself, because it's an energy hog, right? It's three pounds but uses 20%. If you're not using parts of it, it'll program itself to let those parts of the garden wither. So the diversity of thinking and the depth of thinking just one level past what you're used to is the way to keep the whole garden flourishing. And it is a garden. There's chemicals. There are things moving. There are different types of brain cells. It's not just neurons. So I always try to give that metaphor analogy, if you will, that it's a garden and you have to irrigate it and stimulate and tend to all the corners, particularly the ones you're starting to neglect. Then the creative things happen. You don't just sit down and have them happen. You got to work. And dream and go hard and on top of that something creative can happen so now we have the understanding that the brain is meant to think the brain is also meant to command your body to move and absolutely the minute you don't use your left hand the right parietal lobe with the motor strip says I'm not gonna use much I'll shave down that I'll shave down that density of those brain cells a little bit so that's where movements important and then the other thing is navigation when you see old people and they lose their way home well, that has a particular address also. Many things are global in the brain, but navigation is in the temporal lobe and they have dementia in that area. Navigation also is uh, spatial awareness, is a function of the brain. And sometimes when we're on our phones too much, we don't have that. So my kids, I tell them, don't look down. Not religiously or adamantly, but try to just remember our route and just look up and see how, see how far you can get. Uh, I think those habits will help us as we get less young. And those are practical things we can do during the day. And as far as the, uh, the other element is brain training. It doesn't have to be some weird game that's not intuitive. I think brain training just means learning as a habit, one step past where you're comfortable. If you're reading it, you know it, your brain's an, it's an idol. If it's too hard, it's not even engaged. It's, it's, I'm, not, I'm not even gonna win this race. I'm not gonna kick in a second gear. So just, just like video games, just good enough to get to the next level, right? They don't hit you with the fifth level, the tilt level up front. It's level one to level two, level two to level three. That's what learning is. So despite your knowledge and intellect, it's just that level right beyond you that is brain training. So you don't have to buy an app. You just have to challenge yourself and think. Brain's a hybrid vehicle. It grew, it evolved through through thousands and thousands and thousands of years of lots of food scarcity. You didn't eat all the time. And so it's got a backup mechanism called ketones. So after 16 hours, if you don't put glucose in and the liver's done the releasing the glucose it's held onto through glycogen reserves, then it'll start burning fat. It'll clip off those oxygens and hydrogens and they'll make ketones out of it. Intermittent fasting. Can also help you lose weight. I think that's why most people are interested in it. But it's the way the brain prefers to get its fuel source. And it's based on a diet, um, lessons about dieting learned through uh, controlling epilepsy and seizures in kids in areas where there's no medicine. Now, intermittent fasting is back and forth glucose and then ketones, glucose and then ketones. But for kids, if you just get them almost nearly all ketone, As the source that goes up to the brain through an all-fat diet their seizure rate go down you know so that's proof that food changes mind so this whole myth about you only use 20% of your brain no we use 100% of our brain and pictures show that but to get things done we might only use 15 because efficiency is about ruts like dominoes falling in a certain path and the best way I can explain it is as you grow the brain Uh, The way the electricity flows, the way the connections are prioritized is a bit like skiing down a mountain, creating these electrical grooves of sort where if you see something, you see a cliff, fear, it goes down a certain path. And every time you do that and you've reinforced it, it actually becomes less expensive energy-wise to follow and fall into that habit. So these pathways, these habits in our mind, these rituals, these things that uh, are good for us, we want to hold on to those, but a lot of them have become deeply carved, you know, routes down the mountain. And filling those in, burying them and finding healthier ones, is going to be an energy-expending process. The effort will be harder in the beginning, and then as you create a new route down the mountain, you can condition yourself to having more favorable and constructive responses. That's the best way I can explain is why effort will lead to change and your most effort will be spent in the beginning and then you can change your emotional and cognitive responses by conditioning yourself to find a different different route down the mountain. Uh, depression, OCD, and, and obesity, the drive to eat, It can all be modulated and they're all housed near each other that speaks to uh, what they are is is an imbalance of the emotional drive with the ability for the frontal lobes to tamp down some of these instincts it's instinctive to eat sometimes it can feel instinctive to be depressed and sometimes uh obsessive compulsion is is a part of our brain and it's it's a natural part of our brain it it's okay to have those feelings when you have them too much, the imbalance isn't just electrochemical in those emotional hubs, it's, a, it's the frontal lobes not accessing uh, their potential to tamp down some of the emotions. That thinking of creating new habits, and creating new values, uh, creating less triggers in your life, that's the opportunity that we all have. And I think that's the project you're working on. What's the stuff we can control without zapping ourselves and without putting pills in us? Those things set the boundaries, but the frontal lobe regulation of how we feel is in your own command. Thought can change how fast your heart beats. Why wouldn't we believe that thought can change those subcortical structures about anxiety and depression? If you get depressed, you're sort of, you know, you can get stuck. But people who aren't having those mental health issues, but just want to be better and live a more rich life in the sense of personal experience, we can think about our lives and our habits and triggers and create effects inside us. The mind-body connection is is mind down to body. And many people feel, you know, body back up to mind. And that's where meditation and and, and meditative breathing come in. It's not a simple one. It's not a quick fix. It's not gonna be a bullet. It actually takes work. You mentioned repetition, it takes work, it takes effort. uh, And there is no shortcut to it, but it's a glacial change that can happen over a few months to a few years. And I think once, you know, like people go to the gym, they can't not go to the gym anymore. I think people who find these rituals and habits that make them feel better, they become addictive to that. And they're constructive and they're not pharmacologic. You exercise and it releases it, it showers itself. The brain says, hey, I'm feeling good. This is good, I like this. I'm gonna create a new rut. I'm gonna remind you, you feel good when you run. The brain will shower itself with growth factors. There are growth factors. The brain says, hey, you know, the electrochemical balance is better with those. So I think that's where you get the runner's high. You know, it's not just adrenaline. It's not dopamine's a happy chemical. I'm jacked up, I'm on adrenaline. It's just such a complex ecosystem and rather than feeling uh, intimidated by that, to me, I just see opportunities on how people can you know, improve their lives. Changing what shows up on the counter is powerful. And if we ate less, and if we ate efficiently, and we did, you know, it's a less carbon imprint, I think all of those things, it's good for the planet, it's good for us, it's mind and body. And, and then it's also communal you know then then it goes to the next generation it's not just something i did and then i think it can perpetuate so it's not just an individual thing